Welcome to the 27th podcast in our Genesis 12 through 36 sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called Spiral of Grace. Because it's been three weeks, I think we need to kind of recap to, to get a, grap, a grasp on where it is we were, where we left off, and, and where we're jumping back into. This morning we'll be in chapter 35, the first half of that chapter, uh, but uh, we need to kind of jump back into chapters 33 and 34 to catch what's going on. Before I do that, before I forget, this is the first Sunday of the month. And usually on the first Sunday of the month, we have communion together. And uh, this is what has changed, at least for us here in person in this space. For years, we had a table up front, and we had trays out for, uh, for communion, little wafers and little cups that volunteers would fill up and then set out. And then this little thing, the pandemic happened, and that went away, and then we did it online, all online, and now some of you are still online, so you can still find a piece of bread or juice or something in the kitchen in the house to, to be able to share with us. But now we're kind of taking a step back to where we were, okay? So we're not exactly where we, where we were at, because you don't see trays out with individual cups uh, open and you know little pieces of whatever those wafer things are. You don't see that. You see the cups we've been using the last couple years, but we didn't have them in the back. We didn't put them out on the tables because we want to get back to communion as a communal thing, okay? So I hope you're okay at this point by coming up. Uh, If you're not, you don't have to come up, Uh, but uh, you'll notice up front, you have the same cups that we've had, so you can come and take a cup at the end of the service and go back to your seat or go back to stand, go back to wherever you want to. So I think it's important for us to get back to this because communion isn't meant to be just an individual experience. Uh, when Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, it was a supper together with the disciples. And down through Christian history, uh, as we have done, uh, taken the bread and the juice to do that in remembrance of Jesus, what Jesus commanded us to do, that has always been a fellowship with believers around the table modeled after what Jesus and the disciples did. So I want to bring us back into that habit this morning. That's why you didn't see cups in the back and why you see them up here. So if you are new or newer to the church, after I'm done preaching, I will read a passage from 1 Corinthians uh, that to kind of begin our communi- communion time. And then after I'm done with that, it is up to you to decide, you as an individual, you as a family or a couple, whatever, when it is that you want to come up. We'll have two or three songs uh, at the end. So while we are singing, you can come on up to the front and take one of the cups and take it wherever you want and wherever you're comfortable with. So that is an ongoing, active part of our worship. It doesn't all just stop. And I won't 
I won't stop things and tell you when to take it all at one time, okay? Does that make sense? All right, want to make sure that we had that in the background. Three weeks ago, Jacob, also known as Israel, began walking in what I called a new rhythm of grace. Uh, it was not, uh, he had a moment in, in time with the Lord and especially with his brother where things began to change pretty radically. And back uh, in chapter 33, Jacob received a new name and began living in this rhythm of grace. He was no longer the same guy. And we looked at how that what happened with Jacob had a parallel to us as believers in Christ under the new covenant and how we also live with Jesus. So here's what I said about that rhythm of grace idea. There are three different actions that we saw coming out of that passage. One of them is moving, drawing near to God. The second one is seeing, looking to Jesus and Jesus alone and engaging, humbly walking with God and others. All three are actions. All three things are are things that we participate in, that under grace we have the the privilege, really, and the joy of participating in what Jesus has done with us and for us. So that's where we're at a couple weeks ago. I always point out, whether it's Jacob or Abraham or Isaac or other people that we're introduced to in the original Testament or even the New Testament, we look at them like 3D people. They're real people, right? You've heard me say that probably ad nauseum. Uh, Sometimes we look at the Bible, it looks 2D. Uh, they're not, you know, real flesh and bones, and we project on things, them, things that really we shouldn't. They're not perfected anything, and Jacob sure isn't perfect. He is in this rhythm of grace, but he's also having problems in following God and, or uh, living as one who has received grace. So sometimes he gets it right, and we can applaud that. That's a good step. Sometimes we see things that he's struggling with, And sometimes we see things that are really bad, that we would not want to copy, uh, not want to live like. So just because Jacob, this father, this patriarch in Scripture, does something, doesn't mean we should do it, okay? So that in the background, so looking at chapters 33 and 34, where in the world did Jacob go? This is a, a map. Everybody loves maps, right? Anybody like maps? I love you people. Good. That was almost half of you. I love the rest of you too. Okay, but maps are important, and they fill in the blanks of what happened when he was traveling around, right? So we looked at that map, I think three weeks ago, when Jacob was reunited with his long-lost brother Esau. Esau wanted to kill him for stealing the birthright, remember that? And so they come together in the same place, and Esau comes up from the southern part where he, where he lived for a long time, southern part of Palestine, and they meet, Esau doesn't kill him, they have this great reunion. At the end of the reunion, remember what happened? Esau takes off to go back home. That's the, what color is that? Is that purple? I think it started as blue. Anyway, I'm colorblind, what do I know? It's the arrow that's pointing down as closest to me. Okay, so he starts going home, and the idea was Jacob and Esau, hey, we're gonna hang out some more, we're gonna head down there, at least that's what Esau thought, and that's what, what Jacob told him, but just give me some time. I got the kids. I got the animals. You know, I'll catch up to you later, right? And he doesn't do that. What does he do? Remember that? 
the red arrow, he goes in the other direction. He leaves his brother. Nobody knows. I, I threw out some ideas as to why he did that, but we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Was he afraid of him? Uh, was he just being his kind of fickle, deceiving self? The old school Jacob, possibly. Maybe he's a hot mess of different stuff. But we know one thing. He didn't go with his brother. He lied to him. He deceived him. He goes off in the other direction. Now, uh, we, we found out three weeks ago that he went towards Shechem, that he kind of put the, the tent pegs down, that they lived there for a while, and we found out all the terrible things that happened. His daughter, his only daughter, how she was abused, and that led to this, uh, her brothers finding out what happened to her and this rampage through Shechem and widespread killing and murdering going on. Really wicked, terrible stuff. And in the midst of that, Jacob says next to nothing. He had opportunities to speak up and speak into what was going on. Maybe he could have headed off what his sons did, but he didn't. He was oddly, weirdly silent when he could have stood up and said something. So that brings us to chapter 35 for this morning. Jacob, after all that terrible stuff that happened, he's about to start traveling again, and this time he's going to go in the direction that he was supposed to go in the first place, and that's the green arrow towards Bethel, towards his dad Isaac, back into this land, the promised land, even though he was technically in it, but he really wasn't in the right place where he was supposed to be. So from there, we're going to pick up the actual text. And we're going to jump into chapter 35, read the first 15 verses of what's going on. You'll see it on the screen. It's a little bit darker this morning, so if you have a hard time, I hope you have a Bible uh, in your palm or uh, the old-fashioned paper version somewhere near you. So, chapter 35, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. 
the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. If you've been following along at all the last few chapters, you'll notice that there are a number of things in this chapter, that felt like a long reading, right? All 15 verses are long verses. But perhaps you notice there are a number of things that are repeated, themes or names or places that we've already heard in the past. He is called to return to the land of his fathers. He's already been called to do that back in chapter 31. He, uh, the naming of this place of Bethel, he already did that. If you go back to chapter 28, we looked at this amazing dream he had, the staircase that appeared. Remember that? And he called that place Bethel, which means house of God. That was all the way back to chapter 28. And here we see Bethel appearing again as if it's a new place, but it's really not. And also renaming Jacob is Israel. That wasn't too long ago. That was just in chapter 32. He got the name Israel from this unknown guy that he wrestled with. Remember that? This guy that appears out of nowhere and they start having this wrestling match and this guy doesn't say his name. He refuses to identify himself but then he gives Jacob the name Israel. Well, here we have a similar situation. God identifies himself, and he gives him the name that he's already been given. So we have, and that's just for starters. We have a number of themes, names, things that are being repeated, and in addition to that, that kind of adds to this longer history with Jacob of the failings, the shortcomings, and the sinful things that he's done in a way of rejecting what God has called him to do, and he just keeps doing his own thing. So all of these things become a pattern that by chapter 35 begins to feel like a cycle. It begins to look cyclical, like he's going in a circle. These things have happened before, and they begin to happen again. So that brings up some questions, should bring questions for all of us. Where is Jacob really going? He's, he's in this rhythm of grace I mentioned, but, but he doesn't seem to be responding to it well. He doesn't seem to be living in or under grace in the best way that he, well, that he could have. Where is his life going? <laughs> really, where, where is he going in his relationship with God? Is he learning anything? Is he growing at all? And that's not just Jacob. We can pick up plenty of examples in the Bible of people that have encounters with God, but they seem to not go anywhere. They don't learn. They don't grow. They kind of they stall out. So I think it's interesting that the narrator gives us this view, this in-depth view of Jacob in his life and his, in his heart and what's really going on because Jacob is such a great example of us. And sometimes how we kind of get into a pattern in a, in a spiritual way in our lives that looks very similar to Jacob, okay? So let me explain what I think that pattern looks like. Maybe if you're a believer this morning, okay, that 
uh, if you're a believer, you've had a point in life that you can remember that you began your life with Christ, and it was awesome. You experienced grace. You experienced forgiveness. You experienced something that God gave you that you could not come up with on your own, and that was incredible. When you realize the love of God in your life, transforming and changing you, that you're a new person, a new creation in Jesus, that is an awesome experience, right? And that begins this cycle, this rhythm of grace, this feeling pretty good. You get into this rhythm. You begin life in a different way. A new day dawns. And you can move forward thinking and living in a different way. Kind of the, the energy that comes off of having a new life in Christ. And sometimes, for some people, man, it's like a high where you can go for a year or two or longer. And other believers, not so much. Uh, maybe it's months or maybe it's a few days, but there's a euphoric kind of experience sometimes that goes along with being a Christian. But it's somewhere in there, you begin to experience the same struggles that you used to have. And lo and behold, even though things have felt real great as a new person, as a believer, the struggles, the, the situations, the issues, the temptations, they, they weren't as great because you're feeling great about God for a while, but they were just kind of in the background. And all of a sudden, they're in the foreground again. And the struggles are coming back, and they didn't go away like what you hoped they would. Because a new life in Christ, all that stuff should be gone, right? And no longer temptations, no longer struggling with that. But the reality is they're, they're still there. And they're still beckoning you to come back to where it was that you were before Jesus. So sometimes, and maybe you can, you know, maybe this is familiar, you can understand this, perhaps, the sin, the guilt, leads to kind of a spiritual stalling out. That now at this point, maybe those good feelings of becoming a Christian are long gone, the struggles are prominent, they're in your face, and it, start, it starts to feel like... Uh, Maybe I should just go back to where I was before because there is this distance now. It's hard to describe. I can't really measure it. But when I came to Christ, I was close to him. But now we feel far apart. That's kind of what I mean by stalling out. I don't see you as clearly, Lord, as I used to. And now I even feel funny calling you Lord because it doesn't seem like you're Lord anymore. And, and all this other stuff seems to be a lot more important to me than you. So, am I really a Christian? Maybe you've heard stories uh, in, the, in the past, well, I don't know how far we go back. In the last few years, uh, people who have been prominent, speakers, pastors even, authors, podcast people, who just basically explain this is their story that things were going great for a while and other things are, are reintroduced or, or the you know, problems come back, maybe problems they weren't having before, uh, but they begin to happen with, with relationships and their spouse or wherever at, they're at in life, and they begin to deconstruct. Have you heard that word? Deconstruct what it is that they thought they knew and understood and loved about God because it doesn't feel the same anymore so it was never really real in the first place. So I'm not really a Christian because that, maybe that worked for a while, but I've grown out and away from that. 
and now I've got something else. And, or I'm trying to figure out what that something else is. Deconstructing faith. A lot of people have been there. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you know somebody close to you who has come to that place where, I don't think I'm a Christian. I don't know if I ever was a Christian. Uh, I don't understand what that stuff's really about anyway, and it's gotta be whatever I need, whatever, wherever I'm going with life, it's, it's gotta be out there somewhere else. It's gotta be something else. Now, hopefully you can understand at least part of that, and here's where I want us to jump in Uh, especially with what's going on in the text and what we just read. Sometimes life just feels like an endless circle, doesn't it? I mean, you get stuck in a rut or you get into a hard place or uh, get caught up with sin or, or whatever and you can't see clearly what it is that you thought you had clearly. And it's just kind of this dead end cycle that doesn't really go anywhere anymore. That it may feel, as a believer, sometimes it may feel like that, but that is not what's going on. It's not what's going on with Jacob, and it's not what's going on with any of us when it comes to new life in Christ. Now, I wanted to find uh, a, a slinky to try to illustrate this. We used to have slinkies at home when our kids were younger, Anybody still play with slinkies? Anybody? <laughs> All right, great. There's a couple of people. I should have called up somebody to find a slinky to bring it this morning. When you, when you hold a slinky up, it just looks like a circle, right? And it's all co- compact, whatever. You hold it up, this wiry, weird thing. But when you stretch it out, what is it? It's a spiral, right? So that's a spiral. Maybe that's more like a tornado. I don't know. It's a graphic I found somewhere but you stretch it out, it's a spiral. If you run your finger along the edge of a slinky, you're not just going in circles, are you? I mean, it looks like it. If you hold it all together, you're kind of going in circles, but you stretch it out and you run your finger along that slinky and you go around, but you're never in the same place where you started. That's a spiral. You're going somewhere with a spiral. So this morning, I want us to think of how we can know that we are, like Jacob, like we're actually going somewhere, to know we're going somewhere in a relationship with Christ, even though we fail, even though there's problems, even though you may feel like it's going nowhere. This beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 1, the very beginning of Paul's letter to the the believers in Philippi, and here's something that he stresses with them. It's early on in the letter, so it's very important. Right after the introduction and the greeting stuff that Paul always does, he launches into this. And I am sure of this, he says. I love that wording. Hopefully we can be sure of something this morning too. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Maybe you're more familiar with the first verse than the second verse, 
but the two verses go together. And did you discover, did you see why they're so important to be taken together? I am sure of this, Paul says. He who started something will finish it. And that is not based on you, your strength, how great you are today, and I've got it more together than yesterday, or any of that garbage, any of that stuff that we confuse, we deceive ourselves with. All of his confidence is based on what he knows of them and himself in relationship to the grace of God, what we've already been talking about. It is God's grace on you that you can be confident he will finish, no matter what. That's the spiral. Even though it feels like I'm coming back and I'm stalling out, I'm not. I can be confident that he who began something is going to finish it, even though I screw up, even though I'm, I'm, I'm imperfect. Why? Because the grace of God is that great. Now, you don't know how long you've screwed up. <laughs> I don't know how long you've screwed up. I don't know at what point of that circle you're on. Maybe you're the point where I don't even think I'm a Christian anymore. I don't know if I ever was. Does God's grace cover that? Yes. Is God's grace that complete? Is God ever caught off guard? Is he ever confused with us? Oh, I forgot about what she's doing now, what he's thinking. <laughs> Give me a break. God is not like us. And his grace is truly that amazing. So let's see how this spiral of grace begins to work in Jacob's life in chapter 35. And there's actually three things. You see them all there at the same time. Number one, he's got to get up. It's time to move on. Chapter 35, God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel. You've been sitting in the wrong place too long, and it's getting to you. And there is a fear factor that's going on in Jacob's life. Remember Shechem, all the men wiped out. And he said to his sons, you have made me stink. That was the verse from chapter 34, verse 30. You have made me stink with my neighbors. And that's why this text says this fear of God came over all these people. I mean, just think. Widespread murder in this town their relatives, everybody that knows what has happened, do you think they're going to sit idly by and let this happen? Well, they were mad. I can understand. No. They are going to come after them, right? I mean, you would expect that after something like this happened. So it's not just little stink. This is a pretty big stink. All of our lives are now at risk because of what you guys did. That is the depth of the fear factor that's going on. Anybody ever see the show Fear Factor? It, it was on for years. I don't know. It's not on anymore, is it? Nobody, didn't it get dropped a while ago? I think I saw maybe two episodes. Do you know what I'm talking about? People, normal people, maybe sometimes celebrities, doing stupid stuff, right? I mean, gross things. They'd have to eat something nasty to make any, any normal person puke. Fear factor. It was stupid factor, really. They, they named it wrong. <laughs> Nobody does that. But what do you, what, if you watched it at all, you see the same kind of things happen. It's just human nature. The longer you stare at this nasty pile of whatever, oh, I have to eat it. The longer you stare at it, are you more or less likely to actually eat it? Less. Because you're coming to your senses. 
I don't care what the payout is. That's nasty. No one should put that in their mouth. I am out of here. A normal person would do that. Or they lay in a box of spiders or snakes or something. Remember that? They do something stupid like that. No normal person does that. Maybe you've got an experience where you can remember the fear factor got to you. I remember when I was in middle school, we went out to this camp and we're going to do rappelling. Okay? None of us had ever done that before. It was a tower of 20, 25 feet or whatever. And I never even thought, and I don't like heights. And I discovered why I don't like heights. Because that's stupid. You don't get up to a ledge, this wooden ledge, right? And you're all harnessed in. Who cares about the rope? This is stupid. You go up to the edge. Has anybody repelled off a really high, right? So you, you, you turn around, right? And you're holding on to the rope. And you just have to lean back and start walking. No, you don't. Yeah, yeah. And you push off from the ledge and you start walking down, right? Every ki- almost every kid was the same. There was a few kids, okay, <laughs> you know, like the Death Wish kids, and they just they go down, and, you know, five seconds later down the ground and, and no problem. Most of us, myself included, we get all harnessed up, you go to the edge, <laughs> right? And it starts, the fear factor sinks in, and you spend the next half an hour. Like the whole group is getting ticked at you because you're taking so long because you can't bring yourself, the longer you stare at it, the less likely you are to actually do something about it. Jacob has been in the wrong place. He should have never gone there. He should have followed what the Lord said. It may have been easy at first to walk away from that, but they bought land They put the tent pegs down, and then these terrible things happen, and one thing after another, and it got harder and harder and harder to leave. Yet, God says, go, get up, get out of here, get back on the track. Was that easy at that point? Absolutely not. Was he alone in that process? Absolutely not. Not only was God going with him, paving the way, putting the fear in other people's uh, wherever they were at so they weren't in, in any danger, but his entire family goes with him. If you've put your stakes down into a place where you shouldn't be, if you've got into the wrong rhythm of life, if you are beginning to believe lies about yourself, about your relationship with God, about your relationship with other people. It's the same thing. You stay there long enough, and it's going to be really tough to get up and to move on. So I'm going to tell you this. It's never impossible. Never impossible. God gives what's needed for that next step. No matter what's happened, no matter what led you to your Shechem, no matter what has happened in Shechem, no matter how destructive or messed up or dead end that may be in your life, God has what you need to be able to trust him to get to that next step. You gotta get up and be obedient to what God is calling you to do. Number two, gather up to prepare for this next step and purify yourself, to get ready for what it is that God's calling you in to do. 
verse 1, God said, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. And the first order of business, you get into town, you set the, the tents up, what's the first order of business? Worship. Not worship anything. Worship me, God says. Make an altar there to the God to appear to you. It's me, remember me, when you fled from your brother Esau, I've been with you this whole time. Keep your eyes on me, plant yourself there as I've told you to do, and begin worshiping me and no one else and nothing else. He doesn't do it alone. The extended family comes and they've all got to begin this process of purifying, of getting themselves right with God. And that necessitates removing all of the idols. God tells them he's got to do that. Put away the foreign idols, verse two. And then as Jacob speaks to his family, arise, let's go, and, and we're going to go together. And so he gathers up all the foreign gods, the rings that were in their ears. This isn't a commentary on rings are bad, and God hates rings, okay, in general. So if you've got rings on, you're probably okay. If it's your family idol or an image of your idol, you're probably not okay, all right? So that's probably what these earrings, they symbolized some other deity or God or pagan ritual or something, okay? So he gathers these things up, and what does verse 4 say? They gave them to Jacob, and he hid them underneath a terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now, the ESV and most versions translate the, the word there as hide or hiding them, or he hid those things. I think NIV, some other versions say bury, uh, giving the feeling or the idea that what Jacob did was more permanent with those idols. You put it in the ground, it can, it can begin, to rot, begin to rot or whatever. And maybe they are in the ground, but the idea that lingers here with what Jacob did is he simply hid them. Well, like I mentioned earlier, Jacob does some things right, and I think, and scholars didn't, you know, come up, you know, bashing Jacob on this, but I'm going to do a little bashing, okay, because I think it's, it's, it's important to understand something here. Because the text says he gathered these things, he hid them near that certain tree at that certain place, if you are isolating the location, then what have you given yourself the opportunity to do? Go back. I remember where I put those. They have value. There's gold. There's jewels. There, there's, va there's value to the family, right? So we shouldn't take them on the journey with us, but just in case we want to find them, I remember where that tree is and where I hid them, and I can go back. He doesn't burn them. Doesn't destroy them. The same idea. So we don't have time to read it, but if you go to the book of Joshua, chapter 7, there's this big battle that the Israelites have and they lose. And Joshua find out, finds out there's one guy, Achan, who took some of the plunder that was supposed to be devoted to destruction. He took it and he didn't, and the text is the same word. He didn't bury it under his tent, he hid it. Same idea. I'm going to hide this for later, and he's found out, and he pays a price. His life, uh, is, he gives up. He's stoned, not just because he was hoarding, not just because he was trying to keep riches, because he compromised faith. He compromised what God told him to do. He hid it away 
and I can go back and get it elsewhere or later on. Same idea with Jacob. Folks, brothers and sisters, when it comes to getting on with life, with Christ moving on in that rhythm of grace, we got to gather up those idols continually. They keep popping up out of the ground. You try to hide it somewhere, it's going to come back and find you if you don't find it. We've got to keep daily burning them up, destroying them, putting them on that altar, getting rid of them, because they do have a way of jumping back off the altar. We've got to do everything we can to not just hide them away, to destroy them. That's the way we move on in a rhythm of grace. Number three, set up. What, does, what is Jacob told to do? To make this altar and to begin right away worshiping God. So, uh, just as we, so we remember what's going on, God appeared to Jacob, verse nine, uh, and blesses him. And then God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be named, your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. We are on our path and our journey with Christ to constantly be worshiping in a way that reminds us of who God is and what he's done and what his plan is. And that requires that worship has significance, that it has depth. Not just the songs that we sing, certainly that applies to that. That we don't just sing about any kind of romantic notion, okay? Like God's our middle school dance partner or something crazy like that. But our depth the, the, the depth of our lives that each day, like what uh, Romans 12 says, is truly a living sacrifice. The depth of meaning of purpose to keep giving our lives back to Jesus because we have a habit of crawling off the altar just like those idols do. To keep returning to him. We do that by remembering who God is. What does God emphasize in just those little verses? that I just read with Jacob. Number one, you are not who you once were. You're Israel. Now your name was changed back then and you got stuck in a cycle and you went nowhere and you wound up blowing it big time and lives uh, paid the price for that. That was terrible. So God reminds him, you are not Jacob the deceiver, the cheater, the liar anymore. Don't live like that. And I am now giving you grace again to be reminded you're Israel. You're going to contend with me. It's, it's, it's between us now, not the past. You've got to keep leaving that old name in the past. You are not who you once were. You need to remember the, the one thing that matters is who God says you are. And number two, God is greater. God Almighty, El Shaddai, God in all of his greatness is never afraid that he is not going to be capable or strong enough to be able to put your life back together when you fail. 
Now, that's not giving you license to fail, and it doesn't matter. But under grace, we can be confident that we never go away from God because he's always with us. Even if you're somewhere in a cycle that feels like I've put distance between me and God. I've blown it so bad. There's no way he's going to take me back. There's no distance. It may feel like it, but the reality is there's no distance. God doesn't shove you away. His grace is greater than that. He's not surprised by the fact that you screw up sometimes. God is God Almighty. We've got to expand our vision, our, our comprehension just a little bit to begin to understand more and more that he is great enough for all of my mishaps, all of my frustrations, all of my problems. Number three, God has a long-term plan. And he's going to finish it, like what we looked at in Philippians. Kings will come from you, Jacob. That's something we've heard in the past. God keeps repeating that. Now, this is centuries down the road. Nowhere, he has no idea the names, how that's going to happen. King of what, you know? They've been wandering around Canaan, and God keeps promising this land, but we don't see any of that. We just bought, we had to buy some land. Is that what you, you know? He, he doesn't have any idea of what is yet to happen. But God says, I'm good enough, and I'm telling you and reminding you all of these things are going to happen. And number four, you always have a place with God. That reminding of the land is coming. Land in Palestine, in ancient Canaan, land is everything. Land and promise. Land is identity. Land is security. You have your place with God in relationship to other people. Okay? Land is huge. We don't think in the same way uh, as land. Maybe in some ways, but not in every way. Land was everything to have a place with God. You had to have that place to live in physically. But now for us is spiritually. So what, what is going on here? We've looked at Jacob. We look at the promises that were for Jacob and his fathers and then the kings after him. What is it that is the parallel to these things? Well, number one, my grace is sufficient. That's what Paul had to learn when he struggled with a thorn in his flesh. How can this be? God, take it away from me. There's got to be another thing. This hurts. Life now, uh, what I'm dealing with, the struggles that I have, it hurts. It's not right. God, will you take it away? But there's something else that God's working on. And learning that grace is sufficient for all of these things we're talking about. Every struggle, every problem, every sin even, every distraction, every temptation, every time that you get stuck in a cycle, grace is sufficient. That's moving on in a spiral. That's not staying in the same place. God is still at work on you. He will finish what he has started in you. You can count on it. And also, you have a place with God. Remember that believer, you are a child of God. You're not looking at God the same way that Jacob and his fathers did. You're looking at God as one who is drawn close in Jesus with the incarnation who has given his life for you so that you can in return say, you're my dad, you're my father forever, eternally. I've been brought in to your forever family and nothing I can do will sever that. It's the grace of God at work. And all of this because Jesus laid his life down for us. 
the sacrifice of the cross of where Jesus bled out, that he gave his life, he willingly laid his life down, as he said, so he could pick up his life again and live. So we had the seal, not just a bloody cross, but the seal of the resurrection. All of this stuff is just empty religious banter if Jesus didn't live again. But the tomb is empty, and we can go back, and we can see it. And for the last 2,000 years, we have that reassurance. All of what he has revealed to us in his word is true. You can bank on it because Jesus lives. This morning, as we come to the table that's before us, we know that as he spoke with the disciples, they were confused and frustrated. They were in kind of a cycle that was a dead end, looking for a Messiah that they weren't going to get right away, right? Then Jesus said, my body Uh, my blood, this is it. Not physically, you're not eating me, but you're taking me in in a spiritual way. Do this in remembrance of all that I did for you to release you, to save you, to bring you into my family so that you can be confident you are never in a dead-end place in life no matter how bad it feels. So, I'll read briefly from 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, as we prepare, like I said earlier, uh, we'll be singing some worship songs. So it is up to you as you want to prepare. You can pray right where you're at. You can think of these verses. You could pray with each other, with another family member if you want. Uh, but to take the time as you want to take the time to uh, remember what Jesus has done for you. Just keep this in mind. Nothing that you do in preparation for the table makes you better before Jesus. His grace covers you right now. Whatever happened this morning or this past week, his grace is always sufficient. This is celebration time. That Jesus' life and death and resurrection is the exclamation point at the end. It is finished. That's what he cried out. All of the work that was needed to be done is done for my benefit. And I rejoice and I worship and I celebrate what it is that he's done for me. That's what the table reminds us of this morning. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that life is not a dead end, that in you we have all that is needed for new life, for a new uh, sense and understanding of the grace in which we stand, that your blood and your body was not given in vain, and that you are good enough and great enough, you are God Almighty enough to take us wherever we're at and to remind us of your goodness and your presence and our place in your family. 
Do that now, Lord Jesus, as we look at the table and as we take of these elements, be lifted up and glorified. Do a new thing in our hearts and our minds. Stir in us, Holy Spirit, a grateful heart and a renewed mind to worship you again as the God who will finish what he started. In Jesus' name, amen.